So, well, we are uh, in a uh, series called uh, Worldview, and uh, what we're doing in the series is just uh, taking the time on Sunday morning to look at uh, some of the different uh, belief systems that are out there and, and see how that compares and uh, with uh, with our own, with uh, following Christ, right? And so. Uh, last week, we talked about Jehovah's Witness folks, and, uh, you know, we kind of started by acknowledging that, uh, you know, almost everybody in the room at least raised their hand when I, I asked the question, you know, you had one of those folks uh, knocking at your door, right? And uh, I suspect today that would I ask the same question, uh, nobody would, would raise their hand. I suspect none of you have had uh, a Jewish person knocking on your door. Am I right? Yeah, I kind of thought that, right? Yeah. Well, that's what we're going to do this morning, is we're going to talk about kind of our older brother. We're going to talk about uh, Judaism and try to understand um, not only some, some history, obviously, of, of where they come from, but understand uh, where those, those older brothers of our are right now in, in, the, in the world for us. And uh, it's important, I think, that we here at Christ Church do that, uh, because while you probably haven't had, you know, a, a Jewish person knocking on your door lately, you might have driven down Mequon Road lately. And if you've driven down Mequon Road, uh, you'll, especially if you're going west and you look to the left, to the south, you're going to drive by how many synagogues? I can count at least three, right? Yeah, the reality is that, uh, that Judaism is very much among us uh, here at Christ Church in this community. And uh, so it's important for us, I think, to, to take the time and understand uh, these are older brothers, and uh, not just because they are in our midst, but equally because, uh, well, we share so much uh, with them. You know, our roots go back to the same uh, place, and so uh, the roots of Judaism, as our roots, uh, go back to that experience in Genesis 12, when God, just out of his sheer grace, uh, chose to get involved in somebody's life. It's in Genesis 12. It's when God comes and chooses uh, Abraham. We've got it on the screen for you here. Uh, Genesis 12 says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. What is God doing? God is stepping into Abram's life. And he's making a covenant with Abraham. He's stepping in, getting involved now in Abram's life, and he's making that, that covenant with Abraham. And Abraham is the beginning of what ultimately leads to bringing us into the room this morning. We share these common roots. Now, if you look at Genesis 12, you look at Abraham. In that time, Abraham was called a Hebrew. And so uh, folks who were part of that covenant under Abraham uh, were understood to be uh, Hebrews. And that went with, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it went on through all the patriarchs. And, and then it went on uh, to that time when the, the people of God were captive down in Egypt, right? You've all seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. Uh, everybody knows that. So, uh, you know, Charlton Heston's down there in Egypt to free his people. And, and of course, they always call him that name, right? They always call him, say, well, you are a Hebrew, right? Kind of a dirty name, right? You are a Hebrew. Yeah, okay. Well, that's what they were called at that point in the history of God's people. They were understood to be 
to be Hebrews, um, which, which kind of leads us, I think, to ask the first question of the day. And, and kind of the first question is, well, okay, that's the roots, but what is uh, a Jew? What, what does it mean to be Jewish? In its, in its finest term, in its finest understanding, to be understood to be a Jew is to be, the, be of the household of Judah. Remember, they were rescued from Egypt. God brought them out through the wilderness, and they went through that wandering of following God, not following God, following God, not following God, following God. You know, Finally, they get to that promised land, and Joshua takes them into the land, and they conquer the land, and the tribes, uh, 12 tribes, split up the land. Eventually, there's the time of the judges, and then after that, finally, there is a king. And we have King Saul, and then we have King David, and then we have King Solomon, and we have what's, what's called the period of, of uh, the temple, right? And so they have this period of the temple. But we know, because you were all here under the uh, prophet conspiracy message series, right? We know things did not go all well, and so the kingdom fell apart, and then there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Those that were in the southern kingdom, there was just a couple tribes in the southern kingdom, and one of those tribes was the tribe of Judah. This is when the Jewish people began being tagged with that term, Jewish, being part of the tribe of Judah. And eventually, it just became referred to everyone who was part of that southern kingdom, of the kingdom of Judah. That's what the the kingdom was called. It just became applied to everybody who was part of that southern kingdom. And so that term started with just that southern kingdom, and then when it fell, it, it went beyond that and became a simple definition for most folks within, uh, within the Jewish tradition that comes out of Leviticus 24. And in Leviticus 24, uh, folks of the Jewish tradition look at Leviticus 24 and they say, to be a Jew now by definition is simply to be born of a Jewish mother. That it is a biological experience, basically, that one becomes a Jew just simply because you are born of a Jewish mother. And so in today's world, if you would walk up to folks and, and, and you'd find out they're Jewish, say, well, you know, how'd you become a Jew? By and large, most Jewish folks simply understand themselves to be Jewish because they were born that way. They have a Jewish mother and they're born into that experience. Now, you need to understand within contemporary Judaism, there is also an alternative view that it's not simply a question of biology, that one is simply born into being a Jew, but also that one is a Jew if you follow the precepts. And so there are some within today's Judaism who say, look, it's not about biology, it's about following the spiritual laws. It would be summarized that a Jew is one who follows the precepts of the Torah and accepts the 13 principles of faith as taught by a rabbi. So you can see within Judaism, even as we get to understand and define the term, what does it mean to be a Jew, there is discrepancy. Do you see that? And that discrepancy can go from the simple definition that says, well, you're born of a Jewish mother, you're a Jew, all the way to a spiritual experience that says, no, you're a Jew only if you follow the principles of the faith. The reality in today's culture and the people that you run into understand themselves to be Jewish can be anywhere on that parameter. They can be anywhere on that parameter. From being a person who understands themselves to be Jewish just because they're born that way. 
to a person who takes their faith and their tradition and their spiritual relationship with God significantly uh, beyond that. And uh, like us, our our older brothers uh, also find themselves to be uh, split up into different groups. Now, if you you go back into Jesus' day in the temple period and you look at the New Testament, uh, do you remember in the New Testament how Jesus kept running into different groups of Jewish folks, right? Can you think of who they were? Ah, he'd run into some guys called Pharisees. Remember those guys? Sure. Dedicated to the law. Yeah, and then he'd run into some other folks called Sadducees. And then he'd run into these other folks called Scribes. And then he'd run into these other folks called Zealots. And then somewhere out there in the desert, there was even another group of folks called the Essenes. Do you get a sense that they were fairly fractured? Almost sounds like the Lutherans, doesn't it? You know, you get this one, you get that one, you get this one, you get that one, right? Or just we Christians, right? You got Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, Nandanams, you got all this stuff out there. The same is true within the Jewish family, that there's just a mix of different identities. In contemporary culture, in today's understanding, in the rabbinic period, uh, after the fall of the temple and the Jews were dispersed throughout the world, they, they began centering not on temple, but instead centering within synagogue, and listening to the teachings of the rabbi. And so it became the period of of the rabbi and the rabbinic rabbinic, uh, period. What that's evolved to in our contemporary culture today is some basic uh, groups and movements within uh, Judaism. And there they are on the screen for you. The first group is uh, Orthodox uh, Jews. And Orthodox Jews are those who are absolutely, utterly sold out and dedicated the following all of the law, the 613 principles of the Torah, the Old Testament, first five books of the Old Testament, totally sold out in following all of the laws uh, of uh, of the Torah as well as the customs and traditions that go along with that. Uh, Within our geography and our turf, on Sabbath, if you drive down uh, Mequon Road, quite frequently you will see men walking in long black coats, black hats. Seen those folks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an expression of, of the Orthodox tradition uh, within contemporary uh, Judaism. Uh, then there's a group called the Conservative Movement within Judaism, and those folks are kind of a little step backwards from uh, Orthodoxy uh, in that they are not as sold out on following those 613 precepts. They are much more interested in simply preserving the traditions of Judaism. And so they are a little more open to culture, but their dedication is to preserving and experiencing the traditions uh, of Judaism. And take another step away, and that's the Reformed tradition. Uh, the Reformed tradition is the tradition that is the most open to dealing with contemporary culture. And so Reformed tradition in contemporary Judaism is willing to make adjustments to some of the traditions. They're willing to make some adjustments to uh, some of the precepts and, and traditions in order to adapt to contemporary culture. And so uh, Jews within that reform movement are much more tied in just kind of the contemporary world and how their faith can intersect into the contemporary world, where you can see orthodoxy is totally the other way, right? It's about maintaining orthodoxy of their traditions, and the world is over on the side, right? Uh, Then in America here, we have something called the Reconstructionist Movement, It's a modern American movement within Judaism, um, and uh, it basically 
uh, adapts itself to the American culture and says that it's not about the principles, it's not about the precepts, it may not even be about the traditions, it's about each person finding that right place where they need to be in relationship uh, to God. Okay? Uh, for Christian folks out there, uh, it, it may be an identity of understanding here. It may be parallel to, for instance, Unitarianism, right? We're kind of it's everybody kind of finding their own their own faith system, right? And so that's kind of the Reconstructionist movement in today's uh, Judaism. So that gives you a little lay of the land of contemporary Judaism and. You know, from what Jesus experienced in the temple period to what has uh, evolved in the rabbinic period uh, of Judaism. Um, next thing for us I want to look at is, okay, so what's some of the fundamental beliefs then of, uh, of Judaism? And some of them we share. And so here are some of the essential beliefs. And you'll notice right away that I made an adjustment in the first word. Do you see that? That's because it's in orthodoxy one of the fundamental beliefs of orthodoxy in Judaism is that God's name is so revered that it can never be spoken. And so an orthodox Jew will never speak the name of God, nor will they write it. It goes back to the experience of Genesis. You remember back in Genesis when God was creating everything, and he created everything, and he brought everything to Adam, and he said, okay, Adam, you go ahead and name it, right? So he brought every creature to Adam and said, Adam, have fun, man. Come up with some great names. And Adam got to name it, right? Well, the idea is that in Adam's ability to name things, Adam was exercising dominion and power over that which he named. Follow? Therefore, as an Orthodox Jew, one would never speak the name of God because in so doing, I would place myself in a position of dominion even over God. Make sense? So in Judaism, Orthodox Judaism in particular, they will never speak or write the name of God. But some basic beliefs is uh, that God is the creator of all that exists, that God is one, uh, incorporeal, that is without body, is spirit. He alone is to be worshipped, and he is absolute ruler of the universe. Um, they believe also that the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, which is also our Old Testament, we share that, first five books of the Hebrew Bible, uh, which we know as the Torah, uh, that that was revealed to Moses by God, and that those books will not be changed or augmented uh, in the future. Uh, there also is in Judaism something called the Talmud, which is a collection of rabbinic writings, which is our interpretations of uh, the Torah, of the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, but uh, that Talmud is not obviously in the same position or elevated to the same level as the Torah itself. Okay? And that God has communicated to the Jewish people also through the prophets. So they obviously value the word of the prophets and continue to uh, listen to that word of the prophets. Next screen. That God monitors the activities of human beings, that he rewards the individual for good deeds and he punishes people for bad deeds. A pretty simple, straightforward experience of life that says, look, if you do good things, guess what you get? Good things. You do bad things, guess what you get? Bad things. It's kind of kind of that simple. Do you remember uh, in the in the book of Job, right? Life falls apart for Job, and uh, in the book of Job, there are three friends that come to him. And if you read the the dialogue of those three three friends, you will see that simple precept being communicated to Job, that they just come to Job and say, "Oh man, Job." 
<laughs> you really must have done something bad. Right? Why? Well, because he just believed that simple principle. That you do good things, you get good. You do bad things, you get bad. Right? And that God has a special covenant relationship with his people, the Jewish people. And that that covenant is absolutely cemented uh, with the experience at Sinai uh, and, uh, and Moses. And, of course, at Sinai is where God comes to Moses and gives him uh, the Ten Commandments and that summary of the law. So that's some basic fundamental beliefs that go around our brothers, older brothers, uh, Judaism. So then the next question is to ask, well, okay, what is life all about for them then? How, I mean, what's purpose in life? Uh, if you go to the next screen, the, the purpose in life for most folks who follow Judaism is uh, captured in something that's called the Shema. It is kind of the fundamental statement of what life is all about for, Jew, for the Jew. Uh, it is Deuteronomy 6. Why don't you say it with me? If it's fundamental, we should all hear it and know it, right? You ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What are you supposed to do? Just love God, huh? Yeah. Now, what that's augmented with and how that expresses itself within Judaism is the understanding your purpose in life is just to love God and to just do good for all. It's that simple. You're supposed to love God and do good for all. And the way you do good for all is by following the Ten Commandments and following the 613 laws of the Torah. If you follow the commandments, if you follow the precepts of the Torah, those 613 precepts, then you will take actions that simply are always doing good for other people. And if you do good for other people, then what will happen in your life? You'll get good. Because if you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. See how it works? Right. Uh, fundamental understanding that life is wrapped up in the Shema of just doing good. Okay? Now, you ready for the tough questions? If we move on, the tough questions are, well, okay, then uh, what about? What about the Messiah? Does contemporary Judaism expect the Messiah uh, still to come? And in contemporary Judaism, you will find a spectrum of answers to that question. If you are an Orthodox Jew, you will say yes, absolutely. They still pray for, they plead for, and expect the Messiah to return. And yet, as you go down that spectrum of those different groups we talked about, if you get to the Reconstructionist group, uh, they will say, you know what, it really doesn't matter because it's about living life now. Right? And so the answer to that is kind of, kind of broad, but most uh, folks within that Jewish tradition will say, yes, absolutely, we look forward to that. And that's going to lead you to another question, isn't it? Because the next question you're going to say is, well, what about? What about Jesus? Right? What about Jesus? The, the hitch for us when we begin to talk to our older brother uh, in Judaism is this understanding of who the Messiah is or who the Messiah was. For the, Jude the tradition of the Jews, they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Why? Well, they don't recognize him as the Messiah because he didn't simply measure up to the Messiah they expected. It's that simple. Jesus just didn't measure up to the expectations of what Judaism understood the Messiah was supposed to be and do. 
The Messiah, according to Judaism, was to be a warrior Messiah. He was to come back and he was to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. Literally, he was to come back and reestablish the geography of Israel. He was to bring peace to Israel. He was to reestablish David's throne in the kingdom. You see how it's all connected to geography? Jesus didn't measure up because Jesus didn't come back, kick out the Romans, and reestablish David's kingdom in geography as they expected it. For we Christians, we look at that understanding of Messiah, and, and we see a different covenant that God is making about Messiah. And for us, it's wrapped up in Jeremiah 31, 31. I love it when the Bible makes it so easy to remember, don't you? You just got that one right now. Jeremiah what? 31, 31. That easy, right? 31, 31. You got this. Now, let's look at Jeremiah 31 and try to understand what, what God is doing here in Messiah, okay? Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. He's going to do what? Make a new covenant, okay? Old covenant, Abraham, patriarchs, Mount Sinai. Jeremiah is saying God's going to do something different. He's going to make a new covenant. It will not be like the covenant made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Is the new covenant God's going to make just like the old covenant he wrote in stone on Mount Sinai? Absolutely not, according to Jeremiah. This is going to be different. New covenant. Okay, next. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. Now watch close. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Let's stop there for a minute. So on Sinai, God wrote the covenant and the law where? in stone on tablets, right? Jeremiah says, no, God is going to do something new and he's going to establish a new covenant. And this covenant now is not going to be a covenant about stone. It's going to be a covenant about human hearts. You see that? He's going to write it on human hearts. You see what God is doing? See, God is changing what the territory is he wants to conquer. Under the Old Covenant, it was to reestablish the geography of Israel. But under the New Covenant, it is not to conquer the geography of land, but instead to conquer human hearts. See the difference? Judaism does not recognize Jesus as the Messiah because he didn't come to restore the geography. He came to conquer your heart. So Judaism can't see in the prophecies like we see because it's still looking for a different kind of Messiah. Where does that leave uh, us then, uh, we, we Christians? Well, you go to the next one. We Christians, because we understand that new covenant, we Christians understand and look at 
the Old Testament and the Torah and the prophets, and we see how Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies. We, we can just look at Jesus' life because we understand he's conquering human hearts because we expect Messiah to be different than a geography conqueror. We can see that he's doing exactly what God sent Messiah to do. And we could just give you one prophecy in Isaiah 53 and see how Jesus is so clearly, absolutely the fulfillment of that prophecy. He says in Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and he bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. What did Messiah come to do? Conquer human hearts by accomplishing forgiveness of our sins. And this is perhaps the greatest challenge in our dialogue with our older brothers. It's the understanding of the human condition. If you go to the next slide, it's the what about? What about sin? You see, Judaism basically understands that God created all things and he created all things good. And if God created us and he created us good, then we have the opportunity to continue to do good. Or we can choose to do not good, right? That fundamentally, Judaism looks at us as human beings and says we are created good, and so we make a choice. We either live good or we live bad. Christianity, because we understand a new Messiah, we understand that none of us have the capacity to live a life that does good without the Savior, Jesus Christ, empowering us. You with me? It's fundamental to us to understand that we are, by nature, broken people. That we are more prone to be sinful than we are to be righteous. That we come out of the box with this broken nature. We call it theologically original sin. That we just come as broken people. Yes, God created us good, but we fell into this condition where sin is so easy. And we need a Savior to come and overpower that and create the possibility for us to live a good life in his name. Here, here's where it comes from in Romans 3. The Apostle Paul, and, and he's talking here, you see, about Jews and Gentiles. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Now notice 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see the difference? You see, we recognize Jesus as the Messiah because we always recognize our condition and that we need a Savior. We need the grace and the goodness that Jesus accomplished for us uh, on the cross. Now that leads us to the hardest and most difficult question when we talk about our older brother uh, in Judaism. And you know what that question is because you've asked that question in your own minds and hearts, right? What about their salvation? Am I right? Do you ask that question? 
What about it? This is like the hardest question. The Apostle Paul, now remember who Paul was. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul himself, in his writings, he says, listen, I am not just your regular old Jewish guy. I am just not your regular old Pharisee. I am like the best of the best of the best of the best that could ever possibly be in terms of Judaism. I am like El Supremo Superman in Judaism. And Paul struggles in Romans with this question. He struggles. What will happen to God's people? Romans 11 is, is just a glimpse of a summary of, of where Paul would teach and bring us today, I think. Paul says, Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news. And this benefits you Gentiles. They don't understand Messiah. We do. We need to help them understand Messiah, right? Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. What's he telling us? God made a covenant with Abraham. And God made a covenant with David. God made a covenant with his people, the Jews. And God absolutely never fails in fulfilling his word and his covenant. He will never fail fulfilling his word and his covenant. You see, we trust that, don't we? I mean, this is what pulls us through in life too. We trust that when God made those promises to us in Jesus Christ, that those promises are absolutely true. And I can face whatever's in front of me because the promises are absolutely true. And God never fails in his promise. And if he never fails in his promise, then every promise he's made will come true. Even those made to our older brother, the Jews. And we can only hope that they will see the Messiah as we see him. Let me give you an illustration. It's the best thing I can come up with in an illustration. So I got this cell phone. I haven't had this one for, for too long. I had a cell phone before this. And when I got my first cell phone, I had to go in there and I had to sign a contract. Remember that? You guys have done this, haven't you? You have to go in there. You have to sign a contract for like two years that you're going to have the cell phone and you get so many minutes and that's your cell phone. And you sign this covenant. You sign this co contract. And then you're expected to live up to the contract, right? Well, you know what? I signed that contract, and then what happened is I found out that I could get a new cell phone over a period of time. And if I signed a new contract for a new cell phone, I could get more benefits. I could get more minutes in the new contract. Has anybody else done that? I mean, you had the old contract, and the old contract clearly defined this is how many minutes you get, this is the benefits you get, and, and that's the contract. But then I went out and I got a new cell phone and I got a new contract and I got more benefits and I got more minutes. It was absolutely awesome. And I signed that contract and I got all the extra benefits when I signed that contract. Now I suspect I could have just stayed right back here with the first contract and just keep paying the monthly bill and I would have got all the minutes that were promised to me. Agreed? But when I signed the new contract, I got a whole bunch more minutes, and I got a whole bunch more benefits. You see, that's the experience of God has made a contract, a covenant with his people, and he will honor that promise. He will honor that contract. But he has made a contract under Jeremiah with us, and he has grafted us 
into this family that goes back to Abraham. And he has made promises to us in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we enjoy the benefits of that new contract. We enjoy the incredible benefits of trusting and living in his promise and understanding grace and forgiveness. And that even though we don't live up to everything, even though we don't follow the principles of the Ten Commandments and all the 1613 principles of the Torah, there is grace at the cross in Jesus Christ. And our lives under a new covenant and a new contract leads us to the last thing. What then do we do, Christian family, with our older brother? I would hope that we would find ourselves in Psalm 42. Psalm 42 says this, for our older brother and for ourselves, that as a deer longs for streams of water, so long, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. You see, we have a great opportunity because we have an older brother who thirsts for the same God. Yes? He thirsts for the same God. And we need to enter into experiences with every possibility we can to be with our brothers and search for that thirst of that same God. And in the process, as we're entering into that, to be able to do what Jesus did, to be able to do what Paul did, to be able to do what Peter did, and to be able to just share with them the Messiah that we've come to know. Just share with them the Messiah that we've come to know. And the new contract and the new covenant and all the benefits under the new covenant. We have an older brother and we need to just seek and search God with our brother. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for your family that extends uh, way beyond uh, us and it extends to all who would turn their heart to you. We just pray now that you would give us every opportunity to be the witness you want us to be. And uh, we thirst for you and we pray for our older brothers. We pray that they too would continue to thirst for you and that one day they would come to know the Messiah as we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.